0: What demands did Descartes make on justifying belief? The highest. And why not? Why not demand the highest, at least if the highest is possible? And one can't know if it is without first giving it a try. If it is possible, then accepting anything less could be regarded as epistemological laziness, indicating a tepid engagement with truth. Knowledge, remember, is justified true belief. Descartes aimed to eliminate that middle term true in the definition, not because he regarded it as unimportant, but rather the contrary. What Descartes aimed for was a standard of justification that would make the specification of true redundant, except as reasons for one's belief, only grounds that logically exclude the very possibility of the beliefs being false. Such reasons would render the success of a person's belief entirely non-accidental. Recall Dr. McX of the last chapter. Given Dr. McX's reasons for believing that there's life elsewhere in the universe, all the carefully assembled empirical data that she adduced as evidence for her belief remains a distinct possibility that the belief is false, that the vast stretches of our universe are, despite the good reasons of Dr. McX, X, devoid of life. Her reasons don't exclude the possibility of falsity. No good, Dr. McX, not at least according to Descartes. Descartes adopts a method of radical doubt in order to locate the first proposition that will meet his high standards of justification. If there's any way at all for him to still doubt the truth of his belief, any logically possible circumstance he can dream up, no matter how improbable it is, that is consistent with the reason he believes, but would render that belief false. Then he will withhold his belief. He's only going to accept propositions, which are, on the basis of his reasons, indubitable. This is a word he uses again and again, indubitable. This is what he tells us in his famous work, Meditations on First Philosophy. Eventually, he ends up in the service of his method of doubt, supposing that there's an evil demon who is fabricating the content of all of his experiences, everything that he sees, hears, touches, smells, tastes, duping Descartes into believing that he lives in a world of physical objects of various sizes and shapes and positions in space. The mere possibility of such a falsifying source of all one's empirical ideas, a possibility which can't be ruled out on the basis of any one of those empirical ideas is enough to render dubitable any belief that's based on empirical information. It's at this point that Descartes announces that if he can find any proposition that still can't be doubted, even assuming the falsity of all his sensory input, then that will be Awesome. It will be awesome not just because he'll at last found a proposition that passes the standard of justification, but even more awesome he'll have discovered a cognitive faculty entirely independent of the senses for discovering truths about the world. Which brings us to that second fundamental question of epistemology, which so far we've been ignoring, namely, how do we acquire knowledge? Descartes is going to prioritize the faculty responsible for providing him the justification for his first indubitable proposition. But first, Descartes has to produce this indubitable proposition of his. Descartes' first proposition can be written in one word in Latin, sum, which means I am, I exist. It's the first person present tense existential assertion, I exist. It's an interesting proposition, what philosophers and linguists call an indexical proposition, which means the meaning changes depending on the circumstances of its utterance, such as who says it, or when it is said, or where it is said. All of those are indexical propositions. So, for example, if I say, I'm getting tired now of being here, the meaning of that sentence would change depending on three of these indexical factors. Who's speaker, what time he or she is speaking, when the now is, and where he or she is. When I say I'm getting tired now of being here, that proposition is equivalent to Rebecca Goldstein is getting tired of being in this room right now in Plymouth, Massachusetts. If I say I am, I exist, then the only intoxical factor that's relevant is who the speaker is. So that first proposition of Descartes was the proposition that Rene Descartes exists, which is a proposition that is no longer true. Rene Descartes died of pneumonia on February 11, 1650, at the age of 63 in Stockholm, Sweden, where he was living as the philosophy tutor to Queen Christina, who, being a very busy sovereign, had time for philosophy only at 5 a.m. The proposition, I am, on which Descartes had pinned such soaring epistemological hopes is not what philosophers call a necessary truth. Such is, for example, that the sum of the square of two legs of a right triangle are equal to the square of the hypotenuse. The Pythagorean theorem being a necessary truth was true before Pythagoras discovered it in the 6th century BCE, and it will be true when there are none of us around to know it. In fact, its being a necessary truth means that not only is its truth everlasting in this world, but that it's true in all possible worlds. Right now we want to understand what it is about this proposition, I am, that made Descartes so epistemologically giddy. It's this, there is no way that one can ever be in error in believing I am, I exist. The mere act of thinking this proposition true logically excludes the possibility of its falsity. There's no way for error to slip in. After all, error occurs when we think some proposition true that isn't. But that's just not possible here because the mere act of thinking I am logically entails that I indeed am, even if all of our sensory input is false, which proves, says Descartes, That we have a faculty the faculty of reason which perceives logical entailment which is entirely independent of the senses and which can allow us to know certain truths about existence with certainty this claim that our faculty of pure reason which is independent of the senses can allow us to know certain facts about existence about reality is the crucial claim of the epistemological approach that's known as rationalism. Rationalism had its heyday in the 17th century. Its leading thinkers being the Catholic Frenchman Rene Descartes, the Dutch excommunicated Jew Spinoza, and the Protestant German Gottlieb Wilhelm Leibniz, all contemporaries of each other. However, there are still significant thinkers who feel the pull of rationalism, although rationalism with a difference. Noam Chomsky, for example. The epistemological approach that is competitor to empiricism, which denies that crucial claim of rationalism, is empiricism. Empiricism claims that the only propositions that we can derive from pure reason are empty tautological propositions, propositions that depend either on semantics, such as all unicorns have one horn, or on logical form, such as if it's raining, then it's not the case that it's not raining. An instance of the general logical truth that if P, then it's not the case that not P. Such propositions, which are All that the faculty of reason is capable of yielding, at least according to empiricism, have no implications regarding matters of fact or existence. That proposition about unicorns is true, even though there are no unicorns. And the logical proposition, if it's raining, then it's not the case, that it's not not raining, doesn't tell us whether to bring along an umbrella or not. These two epistemological approaches yield different answers regarding all three of the fundamental epistemological questions, namely what is knowledge, what's required for knowledge, how do we acquire knowledge, and what are the limits of knowledge.